If you would take your Bible tonight and look to again to the book of Ruth. And as we mentioned last week, we um, <clears throat> in our Wednesday evening services, we are walking through the prayers that are found in First and Second Thessalonians. In uh, the morning service, we are looking through the book of John. We've made it to chapter 12, and uh, I'll give you a little insight. We might be in chapter 12 for a few more weeks. There's a lot there, the way that it breaks up, and so we've been in John chapter 12. And last week, uh, last Sunday evening, we started this series uh, in the book of Ruth. That's going to carry us from uh, now until, right, lead us right up until uh, Christmas. And uh, as we get a little further and further into our study, most of you are pretty familiar with the story of Ruth and its impact eventually on the line uh, of David and the line of Christ. And so we're studying through the book of Ruth with the intention at looking at the beginning, the very beginning. Now we can go way back to the very, very beginning of the earth, but one of the initial roots of the line of redemption of Christ is found in Ruth. And it is a picture, in a way, of our own redemption in our own lives. And so that's why we're studying this for these few weeks leading up into our Christmas season is to point us to that. In fact, the last week that we study the book of Ruth, we will finish the last chapter of Ruth and actually include with that uh, sermon, we'll include with that night, uh, part of Matthew 1 in the genealogies and how Ruth was used by God and her redemption is used by God to bring about a line that would bring David and would bring kings, but ultimately, most importantly, would bring Christ, the ultimate Redeemer of the world. And so that's why we're jumping into it when we are. And uh, we just got started last week, gave a lot of background about uh, Ruth, the book of Ruth itself, the timing. We mentioned it is written in within the book of Judges, happens within the book of Judges. And so it's that timeline, and it is a chaotic time and a dark time. We mentioned that the Judges were meant to lead God's people to God's rule and to do it in God's way. And the judges really failed, most of them failed drastically at that job and at that opportunity. And so rather than having God's men lead them toward God Himself in God's way, the people often were spun into chaos and turmoil and fighting. And in Ruth's case, she has a little bit, or it, during this time period of Ruth book of Ruth, we have a little bit of all of that. And on top of that, we mentioned last week that a famine now faces certain parts of the country, and particularly in Judah, in the city of Bethlehem. And we mentioned that it is, uh, there is a irony, and I believe probably a planned irony to the fact that uh, the story of Ruth finds its roots in Bethlehem, where one day the ultimate Redeemer in Jesus would come from. And so we go to the city of Bethlehem, and last week we met a man named Elimelech. And we didn't study him long because he did not live long in the book of Ruth. He goes and he leaves Bethlehem, which we said means house of bread, but he found himself having no bread in his own house because of the famine. And he leaves that house of bread. He leaves the place that God had promised to provide. Remember, he said, well, what we said logically, that makes sense. Why would we not leave to provide for our, our families? And Elimelech thinks logically, and he takes it sort of under his own command to head out into Moab. But we said the problem with that was God's promise was in the promised land. And he said, here, 
I will provide for you. Stay in this land and don't go out to my enemies. And he actually leaves. And like we often do when we forsake the plan of God, when God is not working exactly as we want him to, we go out the way that Elimelech said, God is not taking care of this for me, so I'm going to take care of this myself. And he heads out to the actual enemies of God in Moab. They had actually just held Judah captive for a while. The people of Moab, we mentioned last week, were actually born out of Lot's relationship, sinful relationship with his daughters. So, and they worship other idols, particularly two gods in particular that they worship. And so it's not just that he tries to leave for a moment, though it says he wanted to sojourn, just travel there until the famine was over. He ends up going to a place that is the enemies of God and he gets stuck there. He stays there and he stays long enough. We're not sure exactly how long in between in that point, but he dies. And then after he dies, he leaves, of course, his wife, Naomi, who we've been looking at. And he has two sons, Malon and Kilion. They have both married at that point to Ruth and to Orpah. And their two sons live there for 10 years, it says, with their wives. And so we mentioned Elimelech's problem, his logical thinking and his sin affected others. And his best laid plans still had no guarantees. And his best intended sins still had consequences for those that were around him and the ones that he loved. And so they're stuck there. They're there for 10 years and then his sons died. And that's where we left off in verse 5 last week. And we said that Naomi was left alone. And why was that a big deal? Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws, why was it a big deal? This was a, uh, a male-dominated culture in particular in this area. Women did not have their own rights. They did not possess the land. They didn't own their things. And so when her provider died, along with that died her ability to be provided for. Her provisions died with Elimelech. And so then when her sons were there, they took care of their mother. And then when they died, she is left alone in a dangerous land where she has no rights of her own. And so logically, in verse number six, she heads back to her home country. Look at verse six, if you would. And we'll pick up tonight there in our study. It says, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab, so word gets to her all the way, those hundreds of miles away, how that the Lord had visited His people in giving them bread. Wherefore she went forth out of the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return into the land of Judah. So she decides, I'm going home. And Naomi said unto her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to her mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And so she's saying, Go back and find husbands. You know, I can't provide for you in that way. It says, Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voice and wept. There is a deep, passionate love between these three Ladies, and it says in verse 10, And they said unto her, Surely we will return with thee unto thy people. And Naomi said, Turn again, my daughters, why will ye go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Turn again, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have an husband. If I should say, I hope, if I should. 
I have hope if I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons, would ye tarry for them till they were grown? Would ye stay for them from having husbands? Nay, my daughters, for it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. And they lifted up their voice and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. And then, it, in other words, it's saying she returned. She kissed and left, went back. But Ruth clave unto her. And she said, Behold, thy sister-in-law is gone back unto her people and unto her gods. Return thou after thy sister-in-law. And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God, my God. Where thou diest, will I die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if I ought, if ought but death part thee and me. And when she saw that she was steadfastly minded to go with her, then she left speaking unto her. In other words, she didn't talk or argue about it anymore. And so they too went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass, when they were come to Bethlehem, that all the city was moved about them. It was a lot of noise. Wow, what is this? What is going on? Who is this? And they said, Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? So, so Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem in the beginning of barley harvest. Let's ask God to bless His Word as we look at it. Lord, we pray that You'd enlighten our eyes that you would open our ears, you would make your spirit evident to us as you speak to us, and we praise you for it in your precious name. Amen. So we've mentioned Naomi kind of through the first five verses last week, and now the story shifts. Uh, the, the story of Ruth, you could argue one way or the other, that Ruth is a character in the story, but she is not the primary character of the story. You could make an argument there, because you're going to have a little bit of detail about her, but she is not the active character. It's always directed toward her, Naomi toward her, Boaz toward her, the, uh, the closer kinsman toward her. All these things go toward Ruth, but we're going to see that there's an acting agent in the book. The, the Redeemer himself in Boaz is going to end up being the main character. But now the book kind of shifts from Naomi to Ruth particular, and it does this in this transition point that we find in verses 6 through verse number 22. And so, let's go back and look a little bit at what this is uh, and what it can mean in our lives. Last week we talked about unexpected, unwanted circumstances. And this week, we're going to talk about something even a little deeper and how we deal sometimes with pain and with suffering. I want you to think about couple different things as we uh, think about this. Naomi did what logically she could have done and should have done. And Naomi was suffering, and Naomi was in deep pain. And we see that all throughout this text. And it would be easy, and it, and it is easy, to be completely uh, pitiful toward Naomi. And we should be toward her pain and toward her suffering. 
But the suffering of Naomi and the pain of Naomi brought something out of her life that I think tonight we should introspectively examine in our own lives and seek to make sure that we are rid of. Naomi struggled with how she viewed her God and her belief and her attitude toward her God. And her suffering surfaced that belief. I'll give you a little illustration of the little house that Joy and I uh, first lived in. And uh, Philip and Becca lived there for a little while. And in, in that neighborhood, there's a pond. And in, on the edge of that pond, one day I was walking, we found this uh, swing. Probably somebody uh, hung up there in the 1950s is probably what it looked like. It was a rope swing of some sort. Uh, it had grass and moss growing on it and all these different things. And an old board that first time we sat on it, it broke. And you know, all these different things, so we just kind of used our hands and swung on it. And here I am, yes, a married, responsible person walking through in the evening uh, one night in the summer with Joy, and I see it, and I said, we're going to swing in there. So we did. I, I swung in there, and we, I swam a little bit, did some different things, and I went back, took my brothers there, there a few days later, and uh, we were jumping in, and it was, it's not the nicest of ponds. It's pretty gross, actually, and luckily it's deep enough that you can swing into and do these different things, but as you swing out, and you land in it, kind of all that junk stirs up. Well, I went there with my brothers, and as I swung in, I went boom, and we landed, and I sw- came up to the top, and I'm swimming around, and I'm looking, and I said, that is the weirdest looking stick I've ever seen, and so I kind of pushed it out of my way, and I realized it is a squirrel. Um, not a live squirrel, a dead squirrel. And evidently, it had gone to the bottom of this pond or this lake, and me jumping in and the force and the splash and the tidal wave that was there, I guess, brought it to the top. It was buried down in the bottom and it brought it up to float there on the top. Well, pain and suffering do that. Pain and suffering don't always put junk into our lives, but often it reveals the problems that are already there. It surfaces things in our lives. Suffering surfaces things, and often suffering surfaces, most commonly it surfaces bitterness in our lives. One of the largest determining factors in how we deal with suffering and pain is how we view our God. In the most painful and confusing moments of life, what do you believe about your God? If you believe that God is for you, if you believe that He is quote-unquote on your side, or at least calling us to His side through the pain, through the suffering, through the confusion, it can, suffering can actually drive us deeper into the arms of our God, which is what it should do. But if we believe that God somehow is against us, and let me add, in spite of the word that He has told us, if we believe that He is against us, it can lead to bitterness And often we don't want to have outright bitterness toward God, do we? No, I don't think any of us would. We would never want to admit, I am bitter against God Himself. And so what often happens is we channel that bitterness toward people and toward things. Because we're not going to sit down and pillow our head at night and think, I am bitter at God, though we may be, but we'll channel that bitterness to the faults of others and the blame of others. And so I hope that in our study this evening of Naomi's circumstance, it'll lead us to our own form of caution. And that in our own circumstances, when we face problems, that we can miss some of the self-inflicted emotional and spiritual pain that can be brought by suffering 
or confusion or moments of problem in life. Naomi had failed plans. She had broken relationships through death. She had lost a home, and now she had lost a second home. She was in a vulnerable, dangerous situation. By all physical means, we mentioned last week, she was hopeless. And then a small ray of light seems to enter her life in verse number 6. And notice what it says, that all the way in Moab, she hears, and it says that the Lord had visited His people. This is really her speaking. I hear that God has visited His people. I'm going to go home. So somewhere deep in Naomi's heart, she still does have this sense. She doesn't say that there's food in the land of Judah and Bethlehem. She doesn't say they have been restored. She doesn't say there's bread there now. She says God has visited His people. And so there is still a belief there that God is in control. It's not that she doesn't believe in the nature of God. It's that she doubts the character and the intentions of God toward her life. And you can see right off the bat, she still believes some things to be true about God. It's not that she has totally abandoned God in her pain and said, I don't even think that He's there. I don't think that He's real. It's not that. It's that she doubts His character and His intentions. We would do well to understand, even in our advanced society, that if God does not provide physically on this earth, and if there is no provision, it does not mean that He has turned against us. In fact, God is the provider of all good things in our lives. Think about the food and all things in our lives. Think about the food uh, that was there now in Bethlehem. How big of a deal that was, it would have been. We made a big deal last week about the fact they could not go to Walmart or Kroger or uh, you know if they uh, were really feeling good to Whole Foods or somewhere like that along the way and just pick out what they wanted. They didn't ship in food from other places. If it didn't rain and it didn't provide... There were no plants. If there were no plants, there was no grain for bread. If there was no plants, there was no food for livestock. If there was no livestock, there was no meat for the table. If God didn't send the physical necessities, you did not get what you needed, if you want to look at it that way. And in our modern society, we don't really think of it that way. We may picture some things like that. But the truth is, if God still wanted to clap His hands and destroy a food supply for a nation, He could. If God still wanted to take away all physical things that we have, He could. No matter the amount of money or possessions that Elimelech had, He could not buy or get what He needed. And there's times in our life where no matter what it seems like we do, we cannot get what we may need. We mentioned the cancer ministry just a few moments ago. When you are diagnosed with cancer, that word can shake you. And you immediately think of types of treatment. Is there surgery? Is there radiation? Is there chemotherapy? Is there medicine? What can be done for this? But ultimately, it comes to God's control. And Naomi realizes that here, and she says, God has visited His people. So then she says, I'm going to return home. And all of a sudden, we have this first kind of passionate exchange or dialogue in this particular book of Ruth, and she turns to the two people in the world at that, that at that moment understood her pain. You think about that? She hasn't been in Bethlehem for more than 10 years, probably closer to 20 years that she hasn't been back around her family, her, her extended family, her friends. 
These are the two people that she has lived with in her small society, never fully accepted probably by Moab because of their belief and where they came from and the bitterness that was there. These are the two ladies on the whole earth that could understand her suffering in that moment. And she, because of her pain, turns to the two people that could understand and help her. And she says, go away, go home. Don't we often do that when we have suffering and pain in our lives? It is as though no one can help us and God cannot use anyone. No one knows our pain. And it's almost as though we magnify it to the place that there is no escape from it. And Naomi asked them to return to their mother's house, it says. That's a phrase not really used a lot in the Old Testament. In fact, only really three times. And it's kind of always linked to like a reversal of marriage. She's saying, I'm setting you free from your marriage, from your attachment to our family. Go start again. Find new husbands. She speaks very logically. She says, she talks of their love toward their husband and toward her. And she says, I am thankful for your love. I pray that God grants you the way that he has, the way you have with me. She prays that God would give them each rest and a new husband and a family. She says, don't look for answers in me. And then she weeps in love with them. She is not bitter against them, and she does not hate them. She doesn't look at them as some sign of mistake in their lives. She loves them. And because she loves them, she wants to turn them away. But what she does not realize is that in doing this, she's actually trying to turn them away from her one true God. In turning back to Moab, if those two ladies turn back to Moab, she even mentions, go back to your sister-in-law and gone back to her gods. If she turns them back again, she's turning them back to idols, to another culture and to other gods. And Naomi, in essence, encourages them and says, don't trust my God. Because ultimately, Naomi didn't trust her God either. And sometimes in suffering, and in pain, and in confusion, and in hard times and trials of life, if we're not careful, we can turn people, maybe unintentionally, maybe out of deflection, we turn people away from the God that actually has the answers. And Naomi, in her own self-pity, and again, I don't want to rip Naomi up one side and down the other. Her response is a logical response, but it's not really a God-centered response. And she turns to these two who she loves and who she will cry with, who understand her pain, those that have married her little boys and grown up to love them and treat. She said, you treated my boys well. And she looks at them and says, go home. And in a way, she turns them away from her own God. And if we respond in a wrong way to our suffering, we can turn others back to Moab as well. And I wonder tonight, in your trial and in your pain, have you turned someone back to Moab? When someone looks at our lives and our own struggles, our own problems, and even as a church, our own struggles and our own pain, hope and pray that by our response we don't turn people back away from God. And then these two do seem to do something that is unwise in verse 10. They continue on with her. Wisdom says, go back. But their love makes them linger. 
Verse 11, Naomi takes another, to another level. Notice what it says in verse number 11. Naomi says, Turn again, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Are there yet any more sons in my own womb that they may be your husbands? And so now she goes from sincerity and love. Logically, she tries to turn them back, and that doesn't work. And so now she turns from logic to sarcasm. Have you ever had a conversation do that? You're talking with someone, discussing something with them, and you're using logic, and you realize that logic is not going to change their mind. And so then you turn to sarcasm and a snarkiness almost and an outlandish kind of way, and that's what she does. She says, fine, if you won't turn back because of logic, needing a husband, I can't do these things, not providing. She says, are there any more kids in my womb? The word she uses there for womb is not the nice, delicate way that we have it there in English. The, the word it really means like guts. It, she says it in a very harsh, brash way. She says, are there any more babies in my guts to give to you? Like that's, She's just being sarcastic and just kind of mean back towards them to turn them away from those things. She says, if I had a husband, notice if you would in verse uh, number 12, if I should say I have hope, uh, if I should have a husband also tonight and should also bear sons. She says, if we're walking along this road back to Bethlehem and I meet some stud of a man and we hit it off and we get married today and tomorrow and in nine months I have a child, are you going to wait around for 14, in that day, you know, their culture, 14, 15, 16 years to marry them? No, you're not. I can't give you what you need. She turns them away. But instead of pointing and turning them in trust in God, she says, you can't expect anything from me. And isn't that interesting that in our pain and our problems, and when life seems to overwhelm us, our response could often be, I can't do anything for you because of my own problems right now. But in reality, what she could have done is pointed them to her God. But she doesn't because she sees God in a different way. And that's where we're going to kind of uh, line out the rest of this thought or this message. Look at verses kind of down 11 through uh, verse 14. She says, you, why, would you tarry there until they were grown in verse 13? Would you stay for uh, them for having husbands? Look at verse 14. And they lifted up their voice and wept again. So Orpah turns back. She kisses her mother-in-law. But Ruth still won't go back. And she says, behold, thy sister has gone back. So she goes from logic to sarcasm, and now she's just trying to use plain, almost peer pressure. Go back, you are on your own, all, all but rejecting Ruth. And then Ruth gives us this beautiful kind of poem here, doesn't she? And she says in verse number 16, And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee, for whither thou goest I will go. Where thou lodgest I will lodge, thy people shall be my people. I want you to think about what she is saying. I, I want to go back real quick, if you would, at the end of verse 13, and notice this before we jump into what Ruth just said. She says, For it grieveth me much for your sakes that the hand of the Lord is gone out against me. Now that is important, because Naomi's starting to reveal what she thinks about God. She says, The hand of the Lord, the word she uses there for Lord is Yahweh. His covenant name for Israel, the name of which he binds himself to all of his promises. He said, That God has left me. 
And in spite of that, isn't it interesting sometimes you can have an influence on somebody's life for God, not because of yourself, but in spite of yourself. And in spite of Naomi, God is working in Ruth's life. And she says, where you go, I'll go. Where your path is, my path will be. Where your place is, my place will be. Where your people are, that will be my people. And she is willing to go with her all the way. It says she clave unto her. She could not convince her otherwise. And Ruth is an example in a way of kind of the first fruits of God's redemption toward all nations. And it's a pretty picture if you think about it that way. That Ruth, from this enemy of God, born out of the sin of one of those that God had tried to call to Himself, Ruth, from that country, from those enemies, is brought into the family of God. In her own desire, she says, I'll change my name, I'll change my family. We'll find later. She literally changed her nationality. She changed her inheritance. She is committed. And it is a picture of what we want to become as Christians, that all of our lives should change when we follow Christ. She says, where you go, I will go. Your path is my path. Your place is my place. Your people are my people. And we should have that same mentality as Christians. She says, where thou diest, will I die. She says, not only are all those things mine, I won't quit on this. I won't leave you. I'll just go all the way to the end. Is she saying physically I'm going to die in the same house you die in? No, probably not. But she's saying wherever you die, I'm going to be there with you and I'm not going to abandon this. We don't know why Ruth was exactly so committed to this. We don't know exactly if Ruth has her own belief in God at this point. I tend to think that, it has, that this family has had an impact on Ruth because of what she says in verse 17. The Lord, same covenant name, the Lord do so to me, and more also if aught but death part thee from me. She said, God judge me. That's how passionate she is about this. God judge me if I leave you. So it seems like Ruth has her own faith and belief here in God. And so in verse number 19, the two of them return. But Ruth, no matter her zeal and her commitment, her desire alone was not enough. And that's, that's where we're really going to get into the wonderful part of the book of Ruth. She needed something more. She could say, your people are my people, your family's my family, your nation's my nation, but that couldn't happen legally without some help, without a kinsman redeemer. And no matter our desire to get to God or to do things for God, we can't do it without a redeemer. But on their way, verse number 19, so the two of them went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city moved about them. And they said, is this Naomi? Imagine walking in. I tried to place myself in this emotion these last few days and kind of thinking and studying. Imagine the talk of the town as she walks in. Is that, is that Naomi? What? Wow, she is, you know, the ladies won't say she looks old, but she is matured much. She looks different. She's 10 pounds different, you know, whatever it may be. Where are the boys? Where, where, where is Elimelech? No, where, who, who's the one girl, the, that lady that is with her? Who is this? And imagine Naomi as she walks through the town for the first time in all those years, over a decade. Maybe just outside of Bethlehem, she passes a hill or a well that once upon a time she sat with Elimelech, talked and flirted. Maybe she 
walked past a, a tree that they rested under one time together that her boys played under or climbed. And she looks with tears in her eyes as she sees a friend from all those years ago playing with her grandchildren out by the side of the walls. And she'll never experience that herself and the ache that is in her heart as she comes home. Look at verse 20. It almost as though it overwhelms her. And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi. She's going to reveal her heart here. She says, Call me Mara. And I want you to notice and circle the word, For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. She's, she's going to use some names for God here. And then she's going to describe an action with them. That word she uses for, uh, for the Almighty there, that <clears throat> that word is Shaddai. It's kind of like El Shaddai, but it's just a kind of a singular word for it. Shaddai. It means Almighty Provider Sufficient One. She says, The Almighty Provider Sufficient One has chosen to deal bitterly with me. So don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. She blames God for this portion of her life. She says in verse number 21, she uses another word that we already mentioned, and I went out full, and the Lord, she uses there again the word Yahweh, and Yahweh, the covenant God, hath brought me home yet empty again. Why then call you me Naomi? And seeing the Lord, Yahweh, has testified, that means He has spoken against me. And the Almighty, again, the word Shaddai, provider, sufficient one, has afflicted me. I want, you to turn, I want you to get an idea as we finish out. I want you to get an idea of the spirit with which she speaks. I want you to turn to Joshua 24, if you would, very quickly. This word, that word therefore afflicted at the end of verse 21, it's used about a hundred times in the Old Testament in different places. It's translated several different ways. Everything from, uh, everything from uh, he has caused pain, to do harm, distress, grieve, to be hostile toward. It's used in all these different ways. But let's, use, let's look at a couple of references from around the time of Ruth. Look at Joshua verse number 20, or chapter 24. Look at verse number 20, and you're going to see how this word is used here. It says, If ye forsake the Lord and serve strange God, then He will turn and do you hurt. That's the same word that she says, afflicted. Look, if you would, to Judges 19, just a couple pages from where we are. Judges 19, look at verse number 23. She's going to reveal her heart by the word that she uses toward her God. Judges 19, verse 23. And the man, the master of the house, went out unto them and said unto them, Nay, my brethren, nay, I pray you, do not so wickedly. That's the same word Naomi just used about her God. She said, he has hurt me. And so, you see where it says, do not wickedly? That's the same word, to do wicked, to do wrong. She says, Shaddai, ultimate sufficient providing one, has done evil against me. And her heart comes out towards her God. And what has been brewing for all that time really reveals itself as she's speaking and she's overwhelmed. And she says, she levels four accusations at God. She says, He has been bitter against me. He has taken away from me when she says He's made me empty. He has replied to my cries with pain. He has done me wrong. That's the attitude that she has towards her God. He's been bitter against me. He's taken away from me. He has given me pain. And He has done me wrong. 
And like most of us, when we are bitter, she blames God for her pain. And all that she has suffered, she places squarely on the shoulders of God. It is God that has done wrong. And a bitter place, as a bitter person always or often does, she blames God, does not look to herself or her own choices. She doesn't speak of Elimelech or any sort of human action and consequence. It is all towards God. And in her bitterness, get this, God's sovereignty becomes fatalism, free of grace. And all things are kind of predetermined, unchangeable, and all things are powerless against this fate. And in her bitterness, God becomes an omnipotent power without compassion. So what do we do with all this as we finish? What do we do with the suffering of Naomi? Because suffering is going to surface some things in our lives. Pain surfaces faith or frailty. Belief or like Naomi, blame. Is God for me or is God against me? Who am I really? Am I bitter about anything in my life? Introspection can be maddening, can it? Inside my own heart and mind the last few weeks, I'll admit when I do some introspection, it is not a safe place in there sometimes. What banner hangs over your head? She wanted to rename herself before all these people. I'm Mara. My life is miserable. What does your life say of your God? Naomi had the opportunity to speak or to preach into their lives truth of mercy and grace, but instead it was pain and blame. It was a hollowness. But destruction led to redemption. And redemption does not promise a pain-free life, but it does promise a cost-free love that carries us through the difficulties of life into the perfection of the next one. And let me leave you with a note of grace. I'll do this for, I got, I got another minute or two, I'll do this. Have you ever played a scale? It'd be a terrible place to end, it'd be a terrible place to end the sermon tonight. She is a, just bitter against her God. It was awful. See you next week. <laughs> you ever played a scale? I used to do this to bother certain people. Um, my, uh, my youth pastor, uh, you know, Rick Eco, and uh, his office was upstairs in the teen room. And every now and then in the summer, if I was here, I would go up to his office and I'd go, and I'd leave. <laughs> and he didn't know how to play the piano, so he didn't know which note to hit. And I would, yeah, yeah, this way, I didn't feel that way to him. <laughs> so let me leave you with a note of grace. Look at verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem. Notice this phrase. In the beginning of barley harvest, and in spite of her bitterness, in spite of her lack of faith, God still remains faithful. They get there just in time for barley harvest. They're not too late. God is not late. He is always in and on time. And Ruth did not have access on her own to this harvest. She didn't have any claim 
to what was going to be left behind. She needed someone else to enact it. And we can desire for our lives to have access to something, but without Christ, without our kinsman redeemer. Ruth needed a kinsman redeemer, and we need a perfect one. And so, with this note of grace, let me leave you with that. Next week, we're going to find one in Boaz, just as we can find one in Christ.